I'll be reading from John, first chapter, verse 19 through 34. This was John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, Who are you? He didn't deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. What then, they asked him, Are you Elijah? I am not, he said. Are you the prophet? No, he answered. Who are you then, they asked. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had sent from the Pharisees. So they asked him, why then do you baptize if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? I baptize with water, John answered them. Someone stands among you, but you don't know him. He is the one coming after me, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to untie. All this happened in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one you see the spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the spirit. I have seen and testified that this is the son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as we are in this season of Advent, and as we approach uh, Christmas, God, this is a, a very familiar rhythm. And God, I pray that this would not be um, meaningless routine. Father, I pray that we would see you as the God that not only came, but the God that is always coming. I pray that we would see you as a God that is always pursuing. God, I, I pray that we would feel your presence. I pray that we would see that you are absolutely here in the singing uh, in the preaching of your word, in the reading of your word, God, I pray that you would do the, the thing that you promised to do, to correct us, to change us, to comfort us, to reprove us. Father, I pray that through your word, we would have a better view of who you are. Jesus, I pray we would have an enlarged view of who you are. God, I pray that we would, uh, we would cease and desist from all attempts to steal your glory for ourselves this Christmas. God, I pray that this will be about your glory alone and not ours. We pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. So several years ago, really, really long time ago, actually, before I was born, there was a show that was out. I ended up seeing reruns of it. Uh, it was called All in the Family. Some of you guys remember this show, All in the Family? It's a weird kind of character. It's a guy who was pretty unashamedly bigoted, uh, very kind of, they, they cast this character as this whole kind of idiot guy to kind of show you just how much he had, how far he had to go to learn how to really see people uh, with real dignity. And, and they would poke fun. The show would poke fun at his character often uh, because he was uh, this person who was kind of rude and brash. But in one show uh, in particular, uh, he, he told his wife, Archie told his wife, Edith, that he wanted to be on the bowling team. He said he wanted to be on this bowling team so bad that he could taste it. And in talking to her, he said, he described the bowling ball shirts that they were wearing. They were called the cannonballers. 
And on these, on these shirts, they had on the back, like, they, there's yellow silk shirts, and, and they, 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 there was bright red kind of on the collar and on the sleeves. And on the back, it said, the Cannonballers. And they had a picture of a cannon firing a bowling ball uh, at the set of pins. And here's what he said. He was talking to her about how badly he wanted to be on this team and how badly he wanted to be a part of this group and how badly he wanted to have this uniform. And he said, when you got something like that on your back, Edith, you know you're somebody. And in that, he starts to kind of walk through like how important it is for him to have a sense of glory in himself. I want, I want to be a part of this because there's a sense of glory I get to have if I'm on the same team as the cannonballers. If only I could do something in order to be able to get a shirt like that that has the design on the back so that I could feel a sense of glory. Now, the show at the time, it was uh, satire about a man who wanted to gain a sense of identity and a sense of importance from being a, a part of a bowling team by wearing this gaudy shirt. But the anecdote raises the question, the question that we have to ask ourselves, that the question I have to ask you, who are you? The question you have to ask yourself, who am I? Honestly, who, who, who are we? This is the question that Archie is really, kind of, in that example, is, trying to, is, is shooting for, right? When you look through the, the, the text and you look at what we're going to be reading, we start to kind of see where the source of our, our identity should actually be. Where, in, in what should we look for our identity. Better way to put it is, what do I look for in order to bring myself glory? Now listen, when we talk about glory, it's, it's a word that we throw around. It, it's really easy. Sometimes we shout it as, a, as an exclamation, glory! Sometimes we, we use it to describe uh, the feeling that we get when something is really, really good. But, but ultimately, when the scriptures are talking about glory, it really is something that we should be able to identify pretty easily. We all want a sense of feeling validation for something good. And that's not bad. In our life, right, in order to work well, right, in order to be successful in our respective careers, there's a sense of glory or a sense of, of recognition for jobs that are done well, right? Like if you, if you are, if you are uh, as a matter of fact, for the most part, if people don't give you some sense of glory or recognition for what you do, you probably won't do well at that job long term. You probably won't be hired by anyone else. If you're an attorney and you don't have a very good record at, at, at how you actually handle the legal process, how well you prosecute or how well you defend or how well you are a part of this adjudication process, if you don't have a good record there, then no one's going to want to hire you again. If you're someone who regularly cannot actually provide or, or bring settlements for people who have been harmed and people are going to go, you've lost the last 20 cases, there's no rec good recognition for you. There's no glory when it comes to your record. Why would I hire you? If, if, if you make a movie and the movie does not get enough recognition, who is going to want to see your movie? Right? So in the normal world, the way that we function, glory or, 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 or fame or recognition is something that makes sense. It's not in and of itself a bad thing. We, we, we need that on some level. It, no matter what it is that you do, somebody has to give some type of an estimation of how well you do your job. 
in relationships. Somebody should be able to have a feel. If you're in a, a relationship with someone, they should be able to esteem some of the things that you do well. If you don't get that positive estimation, then you're thinking, I'm doing something wrong. Something's not well. So understand, glory in and of itself or, or being valid or, or being reminded of the things that you're doing well, those things aren't necessarily bad. But the question is, what type of glory do we find our identity in? That, that's the bigger question. What type of glory, what type of recognition, what type of job well done, what, what do I look for in order to find my identity? How should your sense of who you are before God as a Christian shape how you live and what you do? That's the question. And the reason why this is important is because so often we take those, those other areas of glory and we exalt those to the area of glory that should only be God's. And that's our identity now. So the moment things start to, and listen, this is what's hard. Even in our friendships and in our relationships, I, I, I didn't even intend to go here, but there's a lot of places where we'll find glory when we're like in one-on-one, -on -one, and especially when we have conflict. If I have conflict with you and you're bringing up something about me that, that may not be right, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you a list of things that I've gotten glory for. Hey, listen, you're really, really insensitive on this thing. How are you going to tell me I'm insensitive? 17 people have told me how sensitive I am. Try again. <laughs> when people are able to show you the lack of humility that you have and you go, how are you going to tell me I'm not humble? My mom's been telling me I'm humble since I was 17. How are you going to tell me that I don't know X, Y, and Z? I've got, I've got a bunch of people that can root or vouch for the fact that I know this. Listen, number one, humility is something that is never declared, it's demonstrated. You ought not have to prove to me how humble you are. When we're talking about issues of, 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 of reconciliation and issues of race, class, or what have you, you don't need to brag to me about everything that you know or what you read. You actually need to just demonstrate it. You see, if, if you have to go and convince everybody I'm the I'm, I'm the, the humblest person, or I'm the wokest person, or I'm the kindest person, I'm the most generous person, you're probably lacking in all those areas. But the reason why you appeal to that is because you want your sense of glory to be rooted in that. I don't want to be known as the person that's not as kind or not as generous, because that, gives me a, that doesn't give me the glory that I'm looking for. Then I feel bad because you're not esteeming me the way I think I ought to be esteemed. See, that's what a lack of humility looks like. So, what do you, what do you, what do you, how do you define yourself? If, if we're defining ourselves properly, then things can be brought up and we humbly engage them, but we're not fighting to get glory out of it. And so our text today shows us that John the Baptist was a man who was clear on who he was and he was clear on who he was not. We titled this The Inglorious Ones because one of the last week we referred, we saw how John opens in, in the prologue that we saw showing who is the only one worthy of glory and gives us all the reasons why Jesus in his pre-incarnate pre form and his, in, in, in his incarnate form, why he was one that was worthy of that type of glory. So John opens up teaching us, showing us, by the way, make sure you recognize who the glorious one is. Then these next several verses is almost showing who the glorious ones are not. It's so important that we understand we are never the glorious ones. This doesn't mean that we're in a, in a place where we're like, hey, let me just beat myself up. But what we're getting is I'm never the one that's worthy of the glory is the thing. I'm never the one that's worthy of the glory that's only reserved for God. 
So John, John the Baptist here starts to kind of give us this picture, or John, uh, the author shows us this picture of John the Baptist as someone who has a good sense of who he's not and who he was. He also was incredibly clear about who Jesus is. And it was because he was clear about who he was, he was clear about who he wasn't, he was clear about who Jesus was, that was the only way he was able to properly point people to Jesus. That's the thing. If you don't figure out the wrong things you're seeking glory in, you're likely not nearly as effective as pointing people to Jesus as you think you are. That's why your resume doesn't mean anything. That's why the great stories and the pat, pats on the back and the, the great, even if you were, you know, I, I've done these great things or I've had this ministry or I did this when, at this age or here are the people that were affected. All that's great. That has nothing to do with what you're actually looking for or where, where your identity lies. So at this point, we, we leave the prologue that we saw in, in the first uh, few verses of chapter one. And we begin this long section over the next couple of weeks we'll be looking at that, that basically uh, brings together a testimony for Jesus as the Son of God. All right, so the first 18 verses we saw, he's showing Jesus not only is, the, the very, uh, is deserving of glory, but John basically proves in his, in his passage that Jesus is indeed God, and you cannot know God if you don't know Jesus as God. And he makes that point pretty clear. He starts to explain what can happen if you don't understand him as God. But the rest of chapter 1 starts to present the witness of this forerunner of Jesus, his cousin, John the Baptist. And so what, what, you're, what we're going to see is we see that uh, out of all the things that John has already said, he makes the biggest point by, by pointing this out. We need to be clear on who we are in God's kingdom so that we can effectively point others to Jesus for salvation. You've got to be clear on who you are in God's kingdom if you're ever going to point others to Jesus for salvation. So in order for us to appreciate what's happening in this section, we got to put our imagination caps on. We got to try to go in the time machine back again, get our cultural lenses together. What's actually happening during this time? Who's actually present during this time? What issues are going on? So put yourself in John's sandals. That's right, his sandals. <laughs> Think about what's, what's happening in John's time, okay? God's called you to preach. So you've been called to preach, even though you haven't had any kind of formal training. To be honest, you're, you're a bit indifferent in how you dress and what you eat. You kind of just look, like my grandmother would say, toe up from the flow up. <laughs> Rather than the common linen tunic, you're wearing camel's hair garment with a leather belt, and your diet consists of locusts and wild honey, according to Matthew 3. You're, John, you, you're this guy that's a loner, that's dressed like Bushwhack Bill out in the middle of the desert somewhere, People have no idea like what you're really about. They, they can't quite get, because you're not like the other preachers. You don't quite blend in with the mainstream. You don't, you don't fit in with, with the other folks in your culture. You don't, you don't go to the capital city to go launch your ministry. Because, you know, nowadays, if you're going to be, think about it. I can tell you this as a church planter. When you want to be able to start a church that's going to grow and have large numbers, and what do you do? You want to get, you know, the, the best music, and you want to get, like, the, the best ideas for programs for kids, and, and you make sure you do it in a bustling city where lots of things are happening because that's how you market a good product in church. But that's not what John the Baptist does. He goes out into the middle of the wilderness, and he's dressed like a bum. 
He's dressed like somebody who doesn't belong. And, he, and he's called to go preach. And all of this already is not attractive. This is not what you do to attract people to a ministry. But not only does he do that, your message isn't even very user-friendly. Your message isn't something that people would call seeker-sensitive. Because, you know, not, that's what it is. Hey, if you want to be able to have a really big church, preach messages that don't make people feel bad. If you want to get people to stay, make them smile more than they cry. So, so John the Baptist actually does the very opposite. His first message, his opening line in Luke 3 is this. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Y'all, there are people that are like ministry consultants. They would say, you need to change the way you preach. That's, that's what they would say. They would say, hey, listen, the way you preach some of the things that you're saying, you're never going to grow your church this way. And yet, surprisingly... Thousands are flocking out here to hear this man preach. A lot of them are just curious, like, what's this weirdo doing? How does he survive on locusts and honey? Who eats a locust? I'm serious. That just seems weird. It's a nasty bug. It's like, you know. And not only that, all these people are coming. You're preaching, and you're preaching hard messages. You're preaching messages that nobody will want to listen to on a podcast because it doesn't make anybody feel good. But not only are you preaching this, thousands are coming, and then you're baptizing people regularly after hearing those messages. Now, that was a very common principle. It, wasn't, it was not uncommon. If you were uh, a Gentile that had converted into Judaism, it was not uncommon to be baptized to show what your faith is now. And so Christians continued that same practice. It was not uncommon for a Gentile to join these Jewish Christians and then follow in baptism to show I'm signifying something new, this thing that I identify with, this thing that I believe, and this thing that is a culmination of what God promised in eternity past that God has promised to call me to himself. And guess what? He did it. I'm here. And I identify with the people of God by being baptized. And so he's baptizing people. He's, he's got a whole ministry. He's got this kind of church in the woods, kind of, uh, in my opinion, the anti-Kanye West church. And he's got like all these folks that are just coming out to actually hear the gospel and not just gospel music. Okay, no, I'm just serious. So, 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 so now people are actually hearing to the point where they're hearing messages that aren't popular and their hearts are being pricked, not just comforted or soothed. And so they're hearing these sermons and they're going, there's something wrong here. How do we know this? Because now they're being baptized with a baptism of repentance. Because you see, when the gospel is preached, your heart is pricked. And when your heart is pricked, you are now broken and you're I need to turn back to God or I need to turn to God for the first time. It's never just I feel better about myself now. So here it is, this unpopular kind of style, this unpopular message, this unpopular uh, 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 image. And all of that happens. And now you've got a mega church in the wild. Only Kanye fans will get that. (laughs) 
So, so, so now you've got this, this ministry that's going. Now, here's the other thing. He's baptizing folks. There's a, a sense of authority that he's doing this with. He's baptizing many people who are repenting for the forgiveness of their sins. I can't stress that enough. Anywhere you go, if you are never moved to repent, you need to change churches. If you're never moved to repent, you need to change who you're listening to. You, need, you may need to change what it is that you are trusting and reading because on some level, until the day that Jesus returns, we should always be in this cycle of faith and repentance and faith and repentance and brokenness and comfort. That's the rhythm. That's the dance. So this is what's happening. So all of a sudden, all this stuff's happening way out here in the, in the woods. You've got all these crazy things in the desert. You've got these crazy things that are happening. People are coming back from all over. They're traveling from Jerusalem. They're traveling from even further out. They're, hey, I heard this crazy revival thing's happening. I want to know what's going on. Well, the Jewish leaders get word of this. And the Jewish leaders are like, oh, I, I, don't, I don't really know what to make of this, but let's find out what this is about. So they send a delegation to go check on what this crazy bug-eating dude is doing. So that's what they do. They send priests and Levites from Jerusalem to take him aside and go, who are you? Now, this could be really threatening. Think about this again. If you are this person who, again, is not formally trained, doesn't come from a good stock, doesn't come from a bunch of really wealthy people, you, you, you've got kind of this, this, you're out in the woods, you're doing all these things, there's not a whole lot of things popular about you, and it's one thing, and I can tell you this, it's one thing when you've got a lot of people coming who aren't necessarily professional preachers, but preachers get real funny when other preachers come around. Because there's a whole different audience they're playing for when preachers are around. Because I want to make sure I get the proper glory from them. I want to make sure that I'm esteemed properly from them. Because on some level, they're the gatekeepers. And I want to stay at the gate. So it's interesting where if you're, if you're not settled, preachers get this too. If you're not settled on where your identity is, you will start to change who you are and your message for the wrong audience. And so now this audience shows up. They, they, they show up. They show up and they're like, hey, we want to know what's up. We want to know what are you doing? Who are you? Now, he easily could have given in and gone, this is my chance. Like, I've been out here, I've been out here eating horrible food. I've been out here with horrible clothes. I want better clothes. If I can just impress these folks, maybe I'll get a job at their church. Maybe I'll get a job with there's better resources. So I won't have to be in the desert anymore. Let me say something that will impress them to make them go, you need to be with us. See, that's where people would be prone to go. So they go to him. And if there ever was a time for him to really extol the virtues of John the Baptist, if there ever was a time for him to start to brag about himself and gas himself up and say, hey, listen, uh, I'm glad you're here because I have a deep theological treatise I want to impress you with. This would be the time to do it. If there ever was a time to all of a sudden start talking in King James English, this would have been the time to do it. And so they show up and they're asking, who are you? And they're not clear who he is. They take him aside and it can feel really threatening if you're not sure of your calling and if you're not sure of your message. That would be incredibly threatening. But John was clear on who he was and he was clear on who he was not. And because of that, he pointed even the religious bigwigs back to Jesus. So first point that we see here is this. To effectively point others to Jesus, we have to be clear on who we are not. 
Look at verses 19 through 21. This was John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, who are you? He didn't deny it, but confessed, I'm not the Messiah. So he starts there first because these folks have been waiting. What did we say already? We set the context last week. This is a Jewish community in, in, a, in, in, in a Roman occupied area. They are waiting to this day. There are people waiting for the Messiah to come, waiting for this Messiah with military might to restore what was actually good about the nation of Israel. Waiting for a certain type of Messiah. Listen, we all do this. It's not just the Jews in the, in, in the scriptures. We all love to remake a Messiah in our own image. I need a Messiah that looks like me this way because I can rock with that kind of Messiah. I need one that's going to have this kind of messaging because that's the messaging that I use. Messiahs that claim to be Messiahs, but they don't really kind of, uh, they don't echo but my value system. That's not, a, that's not a Messiah for me. They were waiting for a certain type of Messiah. Here they are in Jerusalem, with no real political capital, with no real uh, influence, with no real nation of their own, something that had been robbed from them, something they know God promised to restore, something they know God promised to bring a Messiah that would deliver them. So they're waiting for this military might, this political leader to come up, uh, rally the troops, and restore, make Israel great again. (laughs) Mega. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, let's just let that simmer for a minute. <laughs> they were waiting. You know it's dangerous, right? Like we, we laugh, but you know it's dangerous, right? Because once you remake the Messiah from, some, from something other than what God actually promised, you'll look to even horrific people to be your leader. And this is just throughout history. I'm not pointing out any names. This is just throughout history. You just go throughout history, when you are yearning, when you think you need something more than what God says you need, people will exploit that. They will say, oh, you need that? Great. I know exactly how to get you that. And so these folks are waiting for that kind of a Messiah. So when they see John the Baptist and they see the influence he seems to have on people, they're going, is it you? And, that's, and he knows that. They don't even have to say, are you the Messiah? They just say, who are you? But John, he reads, he, he reads and contextualizes well. He goes, yeah, I know what it is that you're asking. I'm going to stop you before you get even more specific. I'm not the Messiah. He immediately is like, I don't even want you to start putting that type of glory onto me. I'm not even going to, you know, he could have really left him waiting because he could just enjoy that attention for a while. Hey, is it you? You'll find out in a month, but hang tight. <laughs> He could, he could have done that, right? Because maybe he could have got some resources out of the deal. People do that all the time. He didn't do that. Right away, I don't want any glory. I want no attention for this. I'm not the Messiah. It's not me. He was clear that he was not the Christ. These folks, these expectations are, are running high. And so when they heard about John's popularity, they were like, we got to check him out. He was puzzling. They knew he came from a dad who was a priest. We read, we read about Zacharias in, in the early parts of some of the other Gospels. So they knew he came from some type of priestly background. They knew that, that, he, had, uh, he, they knew that he could easily blend into their crowd then. If, if he were to come into one of the larger cities, they would give him the conventional robes that he could function as a part of the religious establishment. But instead, he was living this unconventional life. So here they are asking, and his strong reply left no room for questioning. The next thing he says then, they go, okay, well, if you're not the Messiah, look at where it goes. What then? They asked him, are you Elijah then? 
Well, context is important here too. They didn't just randomly select a prophet. They realized that this was something that had also been promised in the, Old, in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, the last prophet of the Old Testament was Malachi. Some people think of him as kind of the, the only Italian prophet, Malachi. Sorry, I can't help it. It's just really easy to be cheesy. Anyway, Malachi, some people are just getting it. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. He's the last prophet. We don't hear from God through man for another 400 years after that. So Malachi is the last prophet, and he actually makes this point. He says, uh, he, he ultimately promises that Elijah will return. He states that before the great and terrible day of the Lord, God would send Elijah the prophet to restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. So, most folks who, most Jewish folks who were reading the scriptures were like, okay, well, before the Messiah comes, Elijah's got to come. And so if this guy isn't Messiah, but he's already talking about repenting and preparing for the Messiah to come, this must be Elijah. So they ask him, are you Elijah? And again, John's answers are not ambiguous. He says, no, I am not. Now that is a curious answer, right? Because some people have looked at this and went, well, this denial seems to contradict what we see Jesus saying later in other gospels. Jesus actually does refer to him as Elijah. He says John was the Elijah that had been uh, prophesied. Even the angel who predicted John's birth uh, to Zacharias cited the same prophecy and said that John would go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. So why does John deny that he's Elijah? And this is what's really important. There could be a lot of answers, but first, John probably knew that some Jews were expecting a literal Elijah who didn't die. We know Elijah, throughout the, you read in the Old Testament, he didn't die. So there were folks who were expecting. Listen, if he could fake everybody out and tell them he was Elijah, he would have it made. And he knows that. So he's like, let me make sure, I know where your understanding is, because you're thinking of a literal Elijah. So let me make sure you don't, because I don't want the extra glory that's going to come with that. I don't want to be guilty of robbing glory that only belongs to God. And I know because we're all idolaters, even if you thought it was just Elijah, you would treat him like you would treat God. So he doesn't admit, or he doesn't say, he says flat out, no, I'm not a literal Elijah. And nor was Jesus speaking of a literal Elijah. He's talking about John coming in the same power and in the same authority that Elijah came in. And because oftentimes spiritual things can't be understood by a mind that's not spiritually attuned, it would not have even been why he couldn't even have gone into that at that time. Because he knows that, again, if you're already, you've already kind of made up in your mind, this is what this means, then the moment somebody says, no, I'm not that, you're going to get mad. You're going to get frustrated. You're going to go, no, no, no. I, I, I read my scriptures. You are him. And so he makes it clear, I'm not him. I'm not Elijah. Jesus confers on John his true significance. One man put it this way, no man, I love this, no man is what he himself thinks he is. He is only what Jesus knows him to be. In other words, it doesn't really matter. Like it, it, it matters to a degree that we understand things, are, you know, and understand ourselves and know ourselves. But sometimes we go too deep into that. 
We go too deep into like, well, when things are down, when things are messed up, I just need to spend some time getting to know myself. Now, that's, it's important to know how you're wired and to know kind of where you are, where your strengths are, where your weaknesses are. It's a really good idea if you're getting to know yourself to be very aware of how you're prone to hide and pretend. See, most times when I t- meet people, like, I'm just getting to know the real me. Rarely does it include the brokenness in me. I'm just looking for all the things to affirm about myself because I get to define my glory. But here, it goes beyond that. What the one commentator is saying is, ultimately, yes, you need to know yourself, but, but, but how you see yourself is not really the best estimation of who you are. How Jesus sees you and who he declares you to be is the best estimation of who you are. So he was clear, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not Elijah, and you look at where they go next. He says, they go from, are you the Messiah? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? Okay, they just talked about the prophet Elijah. Who are they talking about here? Because they're trying a third possibility. Are you the prophet? And it's funny, when you look at John, he's so just, he, he's one of those people that just is, you know, there's some people that are like tunnel vision, one track mind, I'm here to do this, don't distract me with any other garbage. His answers get shorter and shorter when you look throughout this exchange. They're like, they're like, wait, are you, are you the prophet? No. That's it. Nope. Who are they looking for? Well, they, most, most uh, scholars will say that they're looking at him as if he might possibly be Moses. Because there also was, in Deuteronomy 18, Moses predicted, the Lord your God will raise, you, uh, raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, you shall listen to him. So in the Jewish community, they had distinguished between this kind of latter-day prophet and the Messiah. They, they expected on some level, they were waiting for Elijah, they were waiting for Moses, they were expecting those type of prophets to show up. It's really hard. This also gets to the point of why it's so important, so important to understand Scripture in context. Because we can actually be hoping, we can actually have a false hope because we have a false interpretation of a thing. And then when it doesn't happen, God, where were you? God, why didn't you show up? And God is like, why didn't you just read all? Why didn't you read the rest of it? Why did you read yourself into the text? And so... They weren't, he, the, the, they, they were looking for these literal prophets, and he's like, no, this isn't it. At this point, here's the problem now. They've asked him probably the three most important questions, and all, all three of those questions had the answer no as the response, which means they've got a problem because they're de- they were sent from likely King Herod. They were sent from the leadership within Jerusalem, and they were sent to come back with an answer of who he was. They don't want to hear three answers of who he isn't. So now they're like, okay, well, we, we don't have anything to, to go on. We have nothing positive to put into our report. So they repeat their question again in verse 23, in 22 and 23. Who are you then? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? And look at his answer. He said, I'm, I'm a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. See, this gives us to the second point. To effectively point others to Jesus, we need to be clear on who we are. See, first, we got to be clear on who we aren't. Then we got to be clear on who we are. John was clear on who he was, which meant he was clear on what his role was in God's economy. 
He was clear on what his role was. My role is not to be the one receiving the glory. My role is just to keep pointing attention to the one who's deserving of the glory. That's it. So, so honestly, my name, my title, my pedigree, it doesn't even matter. The only one that matters is the one that actually redeems and saves. So I'm going to point you to him. This is, kind of, this is where he goes. See, John the Baptist says he sees himself. When they ask him the question, who are you then? He says, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, making straight the way of the Lord. You know what he's citing? He's citing a passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, this is the very passage that he's quoting to kind of let them know. He's thinking, you guys are good Jews. You should know this text. And if you know this text, then you know why I'm here. So he quotes it. And the point of it was, and I love this because the point of him quoting this, he, he, he just says, I'm just a voice. You know why he's saying this? He wants to make sure that he gets no preeminence in his own ministry. He, he wants to make sure that he gets no glory in his own ministry. This is, this is hard because, because in many ways, that's kind of how we, that's how we determine or ascertain whether or not we've done a good job. It's sad, right? You go in and you want to be able to know like, okay, if I sang a song, did people like it? If I preach a sermon, did it land? If, 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 I, if I get up and I do announcements, did I do that well? Whatever it is I'm doing in the corporate worship setting, I have to, like anything else, like any other job, I need some type of evaluation. I want to know if this is working because we think that by, if we do a good enough job, that's what it's going to take for God to do his part. So if I, if I do the right thing, if I do it well enough, if I use the right words in this way, then God will move. Then God will use that. I want to make sure that people, or, or, and more often than not, it's, I mean, sadly, it's, I get my value out of what people think of me, whether I'm in church or outside of church. It's just convenient. I can do it in church now, but I'm, I'm no different than anybody. I just want to be able to feel affirmed. And so church, maybe church feels like an easier one because people can't let you down as easily because they want to make you feel good. It's the reason why anybody ever grow up uh, watching the Apollo, show some of the Apollo. I see those hands. I'm noticing the cultural backgrounds of those hands. I was kidding. <laughs> Because what's funny is when you grow up watching the Apollo, back in the day, uh, there would be people that would get up and they would sing, they would do comedy, they would dance, they would do any number of things. But what's interesting is the Apollo is brutal. Brutal. If you, if you ain't got it, they're going to let you know you ain't got it. And they're going to make you know, and the reason why I don't feel bad for you is because you should have known where you were coming. <laughs> you know who we are. You know what we esteem. You know what brings glory. So if you knew you couldn't hold a, a note in a bucket, don't come here. But people would come. So if you came up there and you sounded horrible, you would get booed. And the dude would come out dancing and doing his thing and yank you off the stage. Nah, y'all know. Come on, Sam, man. So, so, so here's the thing. There was one exception. There was one exception where you could be hot salty garbage at the Apollo and they would never boo you. And what was it? Sing gospel. You get up there and sing the worst gospel song all the way out of tune, making up new notes and people will clap. Oh, go ahead, girl. Sing that song. 
Because that was the one place, that was the one thing you could do where you still would get esteemed on some level, albeit hollow and empty and and not really worth anything. Well, sadly, that's how we treat church. You see, we know that outside of church, there's no exception. It's ruthless outside of church. Outside of church, I have to do the thing to be affirmed for. They're not going to give me nice, sweet uh, pat on the backs. But in church, it's supposed to be nicer. So, so in church, I, so there are some people that love being in church, not necessarily because of the truths that get preached or what it causes my heart to do, but it's like I can get empty and hollow affirmation and no one's ever going to call me out. So when, when, you, when you look at where John the Baptist is having to think now then, it makes, it makes sense why he would go out of his way, right, to make sure that he is not getting any praise or any glory out of this. I'm not the Messiah. I don't get his glory. I'm not Elijah. I don't get his glory. I'm not Moses. I don't get his glory. As a matter of fact, I'm going to give you a very, uh, very not defined title. I'm just a voice. I'm not even the voice. And this voice, you don't even need a name for. I'm just a voice. And the purpose of this voice is to just point attention to the one that's coming. That's it. See, this is what it looks like when when we walk in real humility. You know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say I'm a great voice. He doesn't say I am the important voice. He doesn't say I'm a voice that will forever change world history. He doesn't say I'm a voice that will be exalted and roll. I'm just a voice pointing attention to the coming of the Lord. Now, you know, when he talks about a voice making way, this is imagery that people would know very well because whenever a king was on his way, he would send a messenger out ahead. Nobody ever cared about who the messenger was. Most of the time, they wouldn't even know the messenger's name. He was just a messenger going out ahead to let everybody, hey, y'all get your stuff together. The king is coming. If your houses are messy, clean them up. If you, if, if, if you want him to come by and he happens to stop by, you better have something ready cooking because he's going to come, right? That was the idea. The messenger would come out ahead. The messenger knew my only role is to prepare people's hearts, to prepare their expectations for the Messiah that's coming. You do realize if you are a believer today, that is our primary role. Our primary role is not to brag about everything I've done for Jesus, It's not up to to convince everybody how equipped and qualified I am to do things for Jesus. It simply is this. My role, my job is to point attention and point all glory back to him. Whatever it is, whatever he's gifted me with, whatever my, my time, my talent, my treasures afford me, my goal is to be able to just use those things to point attention to him. I don't want the attention on me. And so you see John the Baptist uh, very much being uh, in this role. He's very clear about who he is. He's clear about who he isn't. And it's interesting because they see this. He, he answers as, I'm just a voice, I'm just a voice, I'm just a voice. They don't like the answer. They, 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 you know, you can see it because you look at how they respond. They have been sent from the Pharisees, so they asked him, why then do you baptize if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? See, because... They see him baptizing with a sense of authority. And I think it could have been interesting. This would have been the time for him to get into this very long, lengthy discussion about his role as this baptizer. He could have really said, well, here's the reason. Let me teach y'all something. Because he could could have really, as they say, stunned on him if he wanted to. He could have been like, I'm going to really show you. I'm going to convince you that not only am I that person, but I'm going to make you feel silly for even asking it. But he doesn't. 
He just, uh, if, if you look at how he responds, he just, you don't really see much. He just says, I baptize with water. Someone stands among you, but you don't know him. He's the one coming after me, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to untie. He doesn't even really ask them. <laughs> he doesn't answer their question. They're like, why are you baptizing? He's almost like, I'm not even going to give you a validation because, you know, you realize when people start to, nothing is worse than when you're doing your job and people start questioning how and why you're doing your job. Nothing is worse than when you know you're doing your job. This is not about times when you're not doing your job and the people who are overlooking you are wanting to know, hey, why aren't you doing your job? But when people are questioning whether or not you should even be doing this job, nothing makes you get more defensive than that. I know for me, it can be very defensive. Like, let me run my resume, because this is what we do. Let me tell you why I'm qualified to do this job. And let me also remind you why you can never dream of doing the job that I'm called to. Right? That's, that's where our pride goes, y'all. He's still working on me, too. So, so when you think about that, and you think about the pride that could have been there, and you see where he goes, he doesn't go to any of that. He doesn't give you any validation for why he should be doing that. He just restates, here's what I'm doing. And by the way, what I'm doing pales in comparison to the one that's getting ready to do what he's going to do. All he does, he takes his time and says, instead of defending myself, I'm just going to point you to the one that's greater. Because I'm the inglorious one. And I'm just going to point you to the glorious one. You're doubting whether or not I should be doing this? It's okay. It's not about me proving to you that I should be doing this. But I'm still going to point you to the one that is more glorious. And then after telling the religious leaders that they didn't know the one standing among them, and he continues to describe them. It says, it is he who comes after me. And he starts describing, he uses this phrase that is, uh, that is it's a phrase they would have understood and we can easily overlook it. He says, he says, someone stands among you, but you don't know him. He is the one coming after me whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to untie. I found something really interesting in studying for this. There's a rabbi, Joshua ben Levi, uh, lived around AD 250. And this, was a, this is something he said. He said, all manner of service that a slave must render to his master, the pupil must render to his teacher, except that of taking off his shoe. So John saw himself as a lowly servant or a slave to Jesus. That's his way of saying, I know that you guys are wondering why I'm doing all of this. And I know it looks like I, I should probably be, be, be uh, 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 kind of giving this sense of virtue and the sense of glory that I should have. You're probably wondering why there's not a whole lot said about me. You don't know enough about me. And, and, but yet I'm doing all these seemingly great things. So I want you to understand that even in the midst of whatever giftedness you see in me, I'm not even worthy of removing the shoe of the one that's coming after me. See, this is what humility does. What humility does when we're really walking in real humility, you almost always deflect that kind of attention all the time. Not just in an artificial way of like, you know, sometimes we can deflect attention just so that the attention gets greater. And you did a really good job. Oh, it wasn't that good. No, it really was good. Let me tell you why. Well, go ahead. Tell me why it was so good. That's, that's not what he's doing. What he's doing here is simply saying, I want to draw attention away from me because I, listen, if we're honest, I know where my heart is prone to go. Like if you're honest about your own sin nature, if you're honest about your desire for praise and glory, let's just be real. Like who, who would outside of the spirit moving on you, who would really push that and eschew that away? Most times we will. We're going to be like, yeah, you know what? Go ahead. 
And so he uh, points that attention away by making the point, I'm not even worthy of removing the shoe of the one that's coming after me. So you're wasting your breath even asking about me. You need to be thinking and preparing for the one that's coming. And this is something that uh, I thought hit me hard because in this world, and it's always been this way in the world, the world will always give you opportunities to esteem yourself more highly than you ought to. But when you're growing in godliness, when you're growing in humility, when you're growing in the way that you're learning and loving and living with Christ, you, you see yourself as like an unworthy servant. Folks will ask you, are you the Christ? And they may not go so far, you may not go so far as to answer uh, yes, but there are plenty of self-inflated preachers who will say, no, I'm not the Christ, but I'm glad you noticed the resemblance. Because, because ultimately, and, and I say this because it's easy, and I have to just be preachers. Any kind of way, if somebody sees something immediately, it's like, you know what, I'm, I'm glad you're seeing just how close the, that, that looks. Because that way I get a little bit of glory in, the, in, in this. I can share a little bit of the praise in this. Well then, okay, if you're not him, are, are you Elijah or the prophet? Well, you could say that I'm a lot like him. I mean, if, if Elijah were here now, I'm sure we'd be the best of friends because we're so much alike. A lot of times, and I can just say this within church world, it's really easy for church folk and especially pastors to just reek of pride. I have to say this, like it's really easy to be in this kind of a position and just reek of pride if you start, why? Because if you start to use this as how you identify, if you start to use this as how you uh, esteem yourself, if you start to use this as how you validate yourself, then the only thing you have left to you is pride. There's nothing else you can cling to. You know what that means? That means inevitably you will be a very good hider. Because no matter how talented this gift is, it will fail you at times. And the times when it fails you, you will, you will go crazy. You will go, I, I hope no one ever sees this about me. I hope no one ever figures out this other stuff about me. I hope people don't figure out that I can't sustain this on my own all the time. I hope they don't figure out that, that I, I, I can't come on full all the time. I can't do this on this level on my own all the time. So what do I have to do? I got to fake it. What do I have to do? I cannot share the other things that's happening. And you don't have to be a preacher to be that. We're, de- we're like that within community with each other. I don't want that person in my group over here to know that these things are there because I, I, I've already given them this impression that I'm this. I've already given them this idea, maybe not intentionally. I didn't know I was doing it. But once they came to me and were, and were like, you are just so X, Y, and Z, and we just love this about you. Well, now I've got an image to, to maintain. Now I've got something to uphold. I've got to make people think that I'm still here. This is the reason why sometimes when you do something well, it can almost be terrifying because now you've got to keep doing that well. That's why uh, when I was in the military, they'd always say, don't volunteer for anything. Because once you volunteer and you do it well, they'll always ask you to keep doing it. So you learn how to feign ignorance. 
I don't even know how to do that. I, I, man, I, I wish I could help you, man, but I can't really, but I'll pray for you. <laughs> and that's it. So, so here, what, what, what are you doing here? You're basically saying, in, in living in humility, I'm going, I realize that no matter, even on my best day, on my best day, I am not worthy to hold the sandal of Jesus outside of him doing something in addition. On my best day, I'm not worthy of any of that praise. And we'll say that. The question is, do we functionally live into that? Let me tell you, where it's hardest to do this are when you're fully aware of the, the ways in which you're gifted and talented. When you are confident in your gifts and your talents, nothing wrong with that, but when you know what you're good at and you know the things that bring you praise and glory, you will struggle even more because you, actually, you know that you're, what you're gifted at, you know where your sweet spot is, you know where your strengths are, you know exactly how to manipulate that when you know you're stronger in certain areas. And so it can be really hard to walk in humility when you know you can fake it and no one will be able to tell. So, the third thing, when we're clear on who we are in God's kingdom and who we aren't, and, and we're, we're clear on the role we play, that is when we effectively point others to Jesus. You'll see this more in the next few weeks when we look at how John points these religious leaders uh, to Jesus in, in, in the next uh, few chapters. And what you see is how he pointed his own disciples to Jesus. find that really interesting. Here you are, you got this massive ministry out in the woods and all these people have been coming and it's all the rage and there's all the buzz about what's going on and all these people are interested in you. Even the other leaders are trying to figure out who you are. And the moment Jesus comes on the scene, you send all your followers to him. Humility. But how is it possible to do that? How is it possible to not hold a closed fist over the people that you get to lead or the, the people that you get to shepherd or the people that you get to feed and pour into? How do you not get to a place where you're like closed fisted around them? Because you realize your role in the kingdom. My role is just to point to him. So wherever maximum glory is, that's where you go. So you don't get to this place where you're like treating it like it's mine. You don't treat the gifts like they're yours. You don't treat the positions, the privileged positions that you've been uh, blessed with. You don't treat that like it's yours. The people that have been, that God has led to you to be able to pour into, to, to share life with, to share the gospel with, you don't treat them like they belong to you. And so you see the way that, that John the Baptist, he's given us this picture of what it means to see yourself as the inglorious one and then to point to the ever glorious one. We'll see this in a couple of chapters. John said, he must increase, I must decrease. That's what humility says. How do I decrease myself so that Jesus can always be elevated? It's a good rule to keep in mind when you ever get a chance to talk about spiritual things. Ask this question, who do you think Jesus is? You know, people always talk, you know, I'm not sure how to share my faith. I don't necessarily know how. And it's hard. Listen, it, there is no, sometimes people will write books and there's like, this is the book on how to do it. That, that, that doesn't always work. <laughs> a lot of times it doesn't because people are dynamic. People are, you have to read where people are to be able to know how to massage the truth of who Jesus is. But a question that is very easy as an icebreaker is this. Who do you think Jesus is? That's it. Who do you think that Jesus is? Most reasonable people will at least agree that there was a historical figure named Jesus. Most will. Some might dispute it. There's some pretty easy evidence to show. At least we know for sure there was a historical person named Jesus. Okay. So you can just starting there to say, 
Who is Jesus to you? It's a good rule just to, to do that. Then if you get to that point, then you, can, you ask, have you ever considered his claims? That's important. Because if you don't do that, then people will do what we're all prone to do. Fill in a bunch of blanks for what they think Jesus said when he never said it. Or when they think Jesus means or what they think Jesus thinks or what they think Jesus feels, even though none of that is, is shown in Scripture. So it's important to, to ask yourself this constantly and to ask others. Do you consider who Jesus is? Do you ever consider the claims of Jesus? Maybe even when people go, well, you know, I just feel like Jesus would be this. Then you go, well, have you ever read the, the Gospels about this? Because this is the most exhaustive place where we have uh, real words from Jesus, as far as folks can tell. So have you, just out of intellectual honesty, have you spent time just reading the Gospels to, to get a feel for what he ever said or what he believed? Y'all, I feel like this is so important right now because... There are many people who profess to be speaking for Jesus right now. People who profess to be Christians, leaders in Christian churches who profess to be speaking for Jesus and are saying words Jesus never said. They are uh, espousing ideas that Jesus would be diametrically opposed to, in my opinion. And, and frankly, they're creating even platforms that you can't back with the very words of Jesus. So if there ever was a time to try to point people back to what Jesus actually said, it's right now. So i got to ask you the question, who do you think Jesus is? Have you actually considered the claims of Jesus? Do you actually spend time uh, understanding and reading the very words that Jesus left us with? Because if you don't do that, how are you going to point to the more glorious one? if you don't actually believe in the more glorious one. And so you, when, when you see how John does this, how he starts to point there, you realize, y'all, everything hangs on who Jesus is. This Christmas season, everything should be hanging on who he is. Everything should be hanging on the claims that he made. Everything hangs on what he did for us on this cross. And so the need for every one of us is to know Jesus Christ, that he is and that he is Savior and Lord. So here are uh, closing lessons here that we need to be able to gather when we think about this and as we go forward. First, this Christmas is a great time to be religious. We already know, right? There's two times of the year that a lot of people will attend. They call them Christers, right? Christmas and Easter. Right? These are times to be really religious. These are times to, to, to start to feel a sense of nostalgia for some folks, to get a feeling of like emotional closeness, emotional connectedness. This is a time. None of that has to do with the gospel, and none of that has to do with the claims of Jesus. It actually has to do with something that we have kind of defined for ourselves that we need, right? Again, those things aren't bad, but those aren't the ultimate reasons why Jesus came. He didn't come to make you warm and fuzzy in December. So the question then is, am I just into religion rather than into Christ? Because if you're just primarily into religion this Christmas, you're going to flatter yourself with your religious performance. And you won't humble yourself in the very presence of who Jesus is. You'll take great joy in the religious practices. And you'll take little joy in who Jesus actually is. The second 
You can only evaluate yourself correctly and point people to Jesus to the extent that you truly know him. This is the primary thing, the, the walk of the Christian. Theologians call it sanctification, what it means to regularly be changed into his image. That is a, that is a lifelong process. And the only way it happens is not just through osmosis and not just through positioning myself to be next to people who are doing it so then it'll just catch on to me. No, it's regularly knowing him. What does it look like for me to have? I don't, I, I don't have to prescribe a rhythm because it's all different for us, but what are the rhythms of And then please hear me. This, we talked about this last week. This is not just what rhythms do I need to get to know who God is. That's really important. But guess what? God revealed himself perfectly in the form of his son, Jesus. So to know Jesus is to know God. To not know Jesus is to not know God. So the question is, again, this, even if you're like on the fence or trying to figure stuff out, that's fine. But you owe it to yourself intellectually to just spend time going, let me just figure out who Jesus is. Let me figure out who Jesus is. If I've been in church my whole life, let me figure out who Jesus is. Maybe who I know Jesus is is based on what mommy and daddy and grandma and grandpa told me that Jesus is. But I realize that there's a real lack of fulfillment in my life. Why? Because I've actually built up this scarecrow of a Jesus that I got from mom and dad, and I don't know him for myself. You cannot point to a Jesus that you don't know. Third, humility is essential for a correct view of yourself. Humility is essential. The reason why we feel like we're always talking about this is because we're always struggling with it. We need a sense of humility to go, no matter what it is I've done, no matter what it is that I know, there's incredible brokenness I still wrestle with, and I need that to constantly be corrected. I need to constantly be aware of the ways that I still don't believe in Jesus enough here. I need to be cognizant of the ways in which uh, I still try to almost help Jesus out in areas of my life because I don't trust him to do that work. I need to be reminded of that, and I need to be convicted by that, and that needs to be a regular rhythm for me. If you read uh, the, the, the godly men from the past and you read theologians all over and you read some of the folks in the early church, you see them constantly pit, and this is controversial, you see them constantly pit this idea of self-esteem versus self-denial. Now, we're not talking about healthy self-esteem because there are ways in which churches even have been spiritually abusive and caused people to think far more lowly of themselves than they should. That's not what this is. But sometimes, especially now in these days, we exalt this idea of self-esteem in such a way that we've kind of removed self-denial from the table. The things that we need to be denying in ourselves, not just artificially, like I'm not eating fat for the next whatever, even though it's not a bad thing, but, or, or I'm giving up this for Lent. Like Those things are fine, but that's not what the, we're talking about, self-denial. We're talking about the ways in which I try to bring glory to myself, which we all do. What do I need to be denying myself so that I don't fall into the trap of self-worship? If we don't find out what those things are in us, for a lot of us, we don't even want to hear that. Because a lot, listen, a lot of us, myself included, we've been wounded in church. And so any, what happens is any language that reminds you of the church that hurts you, you will reject. But that's dangerous. Because the language itself may not even be bad. But the people who abused you with it were. 
And so the question is, Lord, help me to know which things I'm pushing away incorrectly. Where am I erroneous in the things that I'm pushing? This is so important because ultimately, if we don't do that, we'll never be in that place of humility. We'll never get to that place where we're humble enough to go, this part here is wrong in me. And then we'll fight for our own glory when it's pointed out. And then fourth, and this is the thing that just gives me such joy. This is such a basic thing. The most relaxing, the most enjoyable thing. I hope that this Christmas, this is something you can let this just resonate in the halls and deep crevices of your mind and heart. You don't have to be glorious. You don't have to be glorious. The pressure is off of you to have to perform. You don't have to convince people that you have it all together. You don't have to create these worlds and say these things to make people think, I don't care how long you've been a believer. I don't care how long we've been Christians. I don't care if it's our first time here. You don't have to feel like I now have to hide these aspects of me because I don't want people to know. So guess what? It's time to perform again. We don't have to be glorious. I don't have to sell you my glory. You don't have to sell me your glory. We can relax and we can rest in his glory. There are a few things that, in closing, that I want us to think through. I've got a list of things to help you start figuring out, how do I know if I'm living in the glory of man or glory of mankind, or how do I know if I'm living for the glory of God? If we're honest, we're going to see ourselves on these lists. Here's a few things. Here's how you know, kind of glory of humans, right? Glory of men and women. This is how I know if I'm living for that. I measure my success by what I see and what I feel in the moment. So if others don't appreciate what I've done, then I must not be flourishing, and it must be a failure and not worth continuing. That's a hard one. I'm motivated and unmotivated in my work, my friendships, my church, based on the praise or the lack of praise of those around me. Now listen, in church, this can happen really easily. I don't feel like I'm getting affirmed enough, and so I don't know if I want to do this. I don't know if I can continue serving because I don't know if I'm getting enough pats on the back. I don't know if I can continue preaching because I haven't heard enough good word docs. I don't know if I can continue singing because I haven't had enough people, especially when you're in Atlanta. I don't know if I can continue singing because I don't know. I haven't had enough people ask me if I want to go in the studio. I haven't had anybody. I don't know if I want to keep playing because nobody ever asked me to join their tour. That's how you know if you're living for your glory. Your decisions are often driven by what other people will think. Even though if it's a good thing for me to do or if it's a godly thing to do, I'm scared to do that because what are these people going to think? You're easily discouraged, irritated, angry when your efforts are not appreciated by others or when others receive credit for something you have done. Y'all, that's hard. That's really hard. Because I'm the one that put the, the sweat and tears into that thing. And you're getting the praise for that. And you're getting the glory in the moment, especially when it's like an applause-worthy thing. And other people are going, man, good job on that. You're like, excuse me, I hate to you know, interrupt the celebration right now. But in celebratory time's great, but me. <laughs> Next thing, when others praise you, you begin to feel self-confident in your own abilities rather than relying on the Lord to lead and provide. Sometimes the worst poison is the poison of praise. Because you start getting really puffed up in how good you are at this thing. Then you start resting on yourself later. You might have started out humble like, all right, Lord, this is all you. But is it? 
because they're really telling me some things about myself that I ain't read it in the scriptures, but I read it on Facebook and they told me that I'm. Next, you are more drawn to the type of work and serving opportunities that will be noticed and praised by others. This is one that can be hard for you to know about yourself. But a great place is a place in church. It's you don't see people beating down the doors to do the things that are thankless in church or anywhere else. You don't see people beating down the doors to do those things. Sometimes people will do those things hoping to be noticed so that they'll be asked to do the other bigger, greater things. That's how you know you're doing it for your glory. But if you're like, I want to do this just because, A, I want to be able to build up the body. Wherever there are needs, I want to be able to see the body flourish because I realize I'm a part of a family. I'm not just a part of an organization, but I'm a part of an organism. And in order for the organism to function well, we all have to do our part, right? So if I'm thinking like that, then I can't just go, well, you know, because listen, don't get me wrong. Like, I get it. I get it. We all have our additional abilities. We've got our, our, our natural propensities towards certain things. And, you know, I'm not really a this kind of person. I'm a this kind of person. And I'm not really wired like this. I'm more wired like that. There's a place for all of that. But at the same time, when you're part of a family, when there's a need, hey, there's a need. Unless there's something that literally stops me from being able to do this, I should be able to do this and not worry about where the praise is coming from. Another thing, you struggle with competitiveness and envy when someone else succeeds or is given praise, even within the body of Christ. There are times where you can, somebody else is doing something that you know you can do, and you know they just don't do it as well. And you're looking and you're like, eh, I would have done that differently. Eh, I'm going to volunteer to do that because they don't need to be, they, they're not as good. Now, I grew up in a church, and uh, actually, me and Edward were talking about this last week. I grew up in a, a kind of church where musicianship was amazing, folks were just incredible, and you would have people flowing in and out of some of these churches. And a lot of times, musicians can be the worst because musicians will be in a situation where they're really good, and a lot of musicians are great, right? It's not hard, especially in a place like Atlanta. I'm from Detroit. Lots of incredible uh, musicians there. So it's nothing to be in church, a guy's on the organ playing, and another guy comes in and just kind of watches you and sees, and maybe he thinks, I don't know if he really got it like that, so... Let me just tap him on the shoulder and just slide in. Y'all, this happens. Am I lying? This happens regularly. Listen, man, I see you doing that struggle organ playing. Let me just, let me just slide over. Or they may not flat out come up and tap. They'll just try to get your eye, eye contact, try to give you a little nod. And then you notice, oh, that's such and such. They play for such and such. I, and then you start feeling like I need to move out of the way because I don't, I, don't, I, don't, uh, I don't bring the same type of glory that this one will. So when you know that, it can be really hard because if you are, if you are, it's fine to be gifted and talented in a thing, but because that's where your sense of identity is, it's, it's a distraction to you when you're around people that don't do it as well as you do it. So, so it's hard for you to function in a church. If anything, now you're just that you want to be there as like a hired gun or as a mercenary. You don't want to actually be there to be family. Next, you measure success with a short term view rather than an eternal one. I'm measuring whether or not this is good based on short term uh, metrics and not an eternal one. Next, you spend less time in the word and prayer and more time perfecting your craft, your skill, your job or your reputation. 
This could sound super old-fashioned because the church has always been saying this forever, but I have to repeat it. We ought not be in rhythms where we spend more time crafting our brand than we do building into our sanctification. You can't spend more time on perfecting you and doing, I'm going to do me and I'm going to do me well. I'm going to make sure that I'm good. I'm going to make sure I'm healthy. I'm going to do all these things devoid of real gospel discipleship. You see, if you don't do that, then you're still building. You don't realize it, but you're still building your own glory. So you got to ask yourself the question like, yes, it's great to like know things about God. And it's great when good things happen to give him credit when things happen, right? But those are all things you say in reference to things you know about him that has nothing to do with your relation to him. So what do we do then? This Christmas, this is going to be a lot of people saying, a lot of people thinking about uh, Christmas and a lot of people thinking about the baby in the manger. How much time are you spending with the baby in the manger? How much time are you spending reading about that? Next, you only portray the admirable aspects of your life to those around you. That's just, that's just kind of standard, isn't it? Now, don't get, you, you don't want to just do that artificially. You don't walk up to random people and go, you know, I've got a drinking problem. Like, you don't just do that to random people you don't know. I would not advise that. That's not wise. That's kind of foolish. And folks going to talk about you. And I'm not saying that's right. That's just how it is. So, so here's the thing. That means that it's my job. I need to get into safe environments. I need to get into safe friendships and safe community. And it takes a minute to figure out if it's safe, but once it's there, that's where I have to do it. It might only be two or three people, but I need to have that kind of place. And it's not just so that you can obey the the leaders in the church to do it. It's so that I realize God has determined that my greatest growth is going to happen in community and not as an island. It's, It's vital that I find this. That's why when people are like, I'm lonely and I want to be connected, absolutely. Make sure you understand just how much you need that connection beyond just not feeling lonely. I need to be connected because I need to be sanctified. I need to be connected because I need to be discipled. I need to be connected because I need to be discipling. I need all those things in my life. You find comfort in making sure others see your pain and shower you with attention because of it. That's how you know that you're actually in uh, a sense of glory. It's interesting because like some, so this is the opposite of the one thing. Sometimes you hold everything in because you don't want anybody close. Sometimes you just expel everything because of the attention it will bring you. So those are the people that don't read the room well. Those are the people that in the middle of kind of the, You'll be in a moment where it's like, this is a somber time and the attention is over here right now. And so you don't jump up and go, my leg got amputated two years ago. <laughs> and, and, and here's, here's, my, here's my, my, my fake one now. Like, why would you jump into that right now? Like, we were just talking about somebody that just lost their sister. Why would you jump? You realize that there are people that don't read those rooms well. And so they, it almost turns into like the oppression Olympics. So one person over here is hurting. But because you need attention so bad, you've got to jump up and, and one up the other person and go, I got something worse that happened to me. Because you're seeking glory for yourself. Because you're actually not content to just sit there and go, this is the, I want to be able to actually help my brother or my sister here, focus the attention there right now. I don't want to actually bring it uh, to me right now. Your relationships only go so deep that your struggles are not revealed. Your emotions and how you feel about yourself are constantly swayed by what you assume others think of you. 
and you only share a surface level of your faith out of fear of offending someone or giving the perception that you're weak, that you're strange, or that you're narrow-minded. Those are all ways that we seek for glory. And here are uh, ways that we seek for God's glory much quicker. You find joy in Christ's name being exalted even if you receive no attention or praise in the process. When other people praise you, you feel genuinely humbled, undeserving, and overwhelmed by God's grace in your life. <clears throat> you persevere in doing good and find joy in serving Christ even when it isn't glamorous and if it goes unappreciated. You persevere in doing good or you find pleasure in the exercising the unique gifts that God has given you, no matter the outcome or the level of success it brings. And on the other hand, you're able to let these gifts go if the Lord chooses to allow it. <clears throat> That's really big, by the way, because if you, just real quick, if you, uh, let's say you're new and you come to a new church and you always did a certain thing at the old church and the new church is like, hey, we don't really have a need for that right now. We already have somebody else doing it. Well, yeah, but like that's, that's what I do. I don't do anything else. That's who God made me to be. I'm the one that plays the tambourine. I wish we had a tambourine player here. <clears throat> no, I know we got players here. I wish we just played the tambourine. That's what I do. That's who I am. That's it. So what ends up happening is I want this to happen or I'm mad that it's not here at this church. So I constantly bring up, you know, at my last church, we did this. Last church, we really did it this way. You know, we really liked it when this happened this way. There's a place for certain conversations like that. And most times the people who have the biggest opinions about what they think should be in the church are the people that's not discipling the doorknob. Because it's easy to have opinions without any real commitment. Here's the next thing. You're excited for those who do well and compassionate and gracious towards those who fail. You don't measure success by the world's terms, but by the truth of God's word. You're honest about your struggles, your failures, your sin, recognizing that you are always in that process of sanctification alongside every other follower of Jesus. You don't feel the need to portray a certain type <clears throat> of life on social media. You don't need a certain amount of likes. <clears throat> you don't need a certain amount of comments. You need a certain amount of shares. You need a certain amount of retweets, <clears throat> certain amount of friends to feel good about yourself. You respect church leadership and other folks with the goal of glorifying Christ rather than needing to be seen and heard. You seek to know and pursue what Christ values more than climbing the ladder of success and seeking the world's values or seeking what the world values. Two more, you extend grace and forgiveness to those around you, seeking unity in Christ rather than self-protection and revenge. And finally, you don't feel threatened or intimidated by those who seem to be more spiritually mature than you, but you humbly desire to learn from others resting in the knowledge that we are all saved by grace and on our own different paths in our faith. Look, when we stop fighting for our own glory and we start unifying and glorifying Christ, we become, like John the Baptist, a witness and a testimony to a lost world that's already divided and fighting one another for their own temporary glory. It's always interesting to me when people are like, you know, we live in real divided times. We've always been in divided times. It's just very much on display way more now in ways that has ne we've not seen before because we've got 24-hour news and we've got social media where you can always be aware of what's happening. 
And if anything, the current climate is just revealing what's always been true. So, so with that, if, if, there's an, if there's one place, one place where we actually cannot give that picture of division, it should be in the church. If there's one place where we can practice real unity, it should be here in the church. And the only way we're unified, we say this all the time, we need unity, we need unity, we need unity. You, don't, you can't just say, I choose unity and now it's unity. <laughs> the way that you really go into unity is, what, do we exalt, what are we unified in what we exalt together? If we're exalting the same thing together, now we're unified. So if we're exalting Jesus together and we're exalting his heart and we're exalting what he loves and what he hates and we're spending time kind of engaging where he is and we're like, we all want to be unified in being where Jesus is, guess what? Now we're actually practicing real unity. That means that the things that are bad that hurt God's heart, we hate those things together. The things that are good, the things that are true, we unify in those things together. See, the only way we can do that is when we stop looking for our own glory. When we say the, holy, the only goal in this whole thing is to point attention to the Savior, to the one that's coming, to the one that has come, to, to the one that is redeeming God's very Son. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you, you have shown us in so many ways. You show us who we really are. You show us where our, where our strengths are. You show us where our brokenness is. God, I'm thankful that even as we uh, look at that mirror and we are confronted with areas of our hearts that don't seek your glory but seeks our own, Father, I'm thankful that you don't leave us in just a place of shame. I'm, I'm thankful that you don't leave us in a place where we uh, just feel utterly despondent and hopeless. But God, you indeed uh, promise to come into our hearts and change those things that are broken, to heal those things that are broken. And not only heal those things, but you promise to give us a new heart. So God, this Christmas, God, I pray that this would be a time where we're constantly asking, Lord, in what ways am I seeing my heart being ever renewed? In what ways am I giving up the need for self-protection, giving up the need for self-glorification, giving up the need for self-defense, God? What ways are we truly saying, all these things in my life, what does it mean to use those things to point to you? What does it mean to steward these things you've given in order to point to you? God, I pray that you would make that clear. I pray that this Christmas, while all these other things that are good, the time that we have with family, the time that we have with friends, the time that we have uh, with uh, great memories and the nostalgia that's there, God, those things are beautiful and we're thankful for that. But God, I pray that you would, even in the midst of that, that that would not take precedence over your glory. We can find great joy and great praiseworthy things in all of that, Father, but I pray that it would pale in comparison to the jealousy that we have to see your glory. God, let that be true of our hearts. Let that be true of our minds. Let that be true of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.